That was a sentient monkey. You know, last time we forgot to introduce each other. No, we didn't. You always say that. I think we did forget. No, we remember every time. Do we really? Yeah. Okay, I guess now we are, we are remembering All right. to re- reduce each other. <laughs> We've been drinking, by the way, listener. So I'm here reduce, with a drunken monkey Dr. Produce. Graham Sanders, who is a Retro-duce. professor of uh, medieval Chinese poetry. And Ray Watinandan, the professor of epidemiology at the University of Toronto. No, Ottawa. I'm mm. from Toronto. Well, but we should we're swap actually, one day. You should we, teach my class yeah. and I'll teach yours. No but we're in the beach right now. We're, yeah, we're at the beaches in Toronto right now. Not on the beach. We're in an apartment near the beach. Yeah, near the beach. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty cool. Some people say the beaches. Some people say the beach. Isn't that interesting? There is yeah. but one beach, is there not? There is There's one beach, yeah. So the proper term is the beach. People from outside the beach refer to it as the beaches. Language is a beach, man. Yeah. It is. Life's uh, a beach. You know, Graham, why was Curious George so curious? That's a good question. I don't know. Was he curious about what the man the yellow hat was going to do with that banana? Or where he was from? That's so, a good question. I don't know why he was so curious. Was it by Curious George? This would only occur to him if he had many friends. And, ah. and uh, that was a very sloppy segue. Sloppy segue. To today's topic. Ew. Today's topic comes to us from a Twitter follower. Oh, we're all at Twitter. I know. Mary Ellen on Twitter. <laughs> Mary Ellen. Asks us to talk about a particular article that she found on the Washington Post. And mm-hmm. of course, we're going to link to this study. Wapo. <laughs> we're going to link to this, uh, this article on our website, sciencemonkey.ca. The Washington Post article on Well, the title friendship. was Why Smart People Are Better Off with Fewer Friends. Because uh, they're smart. Well, and this has me has me a little concerned because I've got like over 1,200 Facebook friends. Mm. And I know most of them, I think, you know, and I'm in touch with a lot of people. Right. And I pride myself on having lots of friends because I'm heavily insecure and I need that reassur- yes, reassurance yeah, yeah, in my yeah. life. And Graham has... You don't been, know you exist until... Graham has only one like, friend, yeah. me, and I... So sad. Yeah, I know. It's very sad. How do you feel about this, Graham? Do people have too many about friends? About having you as one friend? Yeah. Well, yeah. I don't have much choice. No. It's either you or no one. There's a man in the yellow hat. <laughs> That's true. And his banana. The article mm. actually references uh, a study called Country Roads Take Me Home to My Friends, How Intelligence, Population Density, and Friendship Affect Modern Happiness. And again, I'll link to that study as well. How does yeah. Willie Nelson... That wasn't Willie Nelson. That was Bob Denver. Country Roads is Bob Denver? I'm pretty sure it was. I thought it was Willie Nelson. Country Roads, take me home. Oh, okay. We'll have to look that up. um, Or Israel (laughs) Kamekokoloele. Note to self, gentle reader, we are never doing this drunk again. (laughs) Israel Kamekokoloele. I don't know. Oh, Cat uh, Cat Stevens. No. The, the the Hawaiian guy, brother oh. is. He does an amazing. Does he really? He does an amazing cover of Country Roads. And I always thought Country Roads was a Willie Nelson song, but now tell me it's a Bob Dylan song. Yeah, so. All those guys are the same. I don't know. Always be Willie Nelson to me. Anyway, the study uh-huh. looked at whether intelligent people have fewer friends. But before we ask that question, do but you wait, think, wait, 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 wait. Yes. Already, I'm asking: Does fewer friends equal intelligence, or does intelligence equal? Your friends, like, are you intelligence person first, 
and therefore you you make well, fewer friends or or people who have fewer friends become more intelligent like can you ask can you answer that first of all what does intelligent mean yeah exactly right what so, does friend mean like if I have friends on Facebook, are they my friends? It better be because all I've got, all I've got are Facebook friends. <laughs> people that I've I got like, like to me, a friend is someone you can call up at any time, day or night, and say, "I'm in the hospital. Mm. Can you come?" Do you know the difference like, between a friend and a best friend? What a friend is someone you call to help you move. Uh-huh. A best friend is someone you call to help you move a body. Oh, yeah. yeah. So we'll find out which you are later like on this week. One or two. Yeah. I'm assuming they're measuring intelligence by IQ because one of the authors, uh, Kanazawa, is, is fairly robust in publishing around intelligence quotients and measurements uh-huh. of intelligence. Okay. He's a bit of a problematic individual. He's right. gotten in trouble in the past for talking about how certain races are less attractive than other races and, uh-huh. um, and certain genders are less intelligent than other genders. He's an evolutionary uh-huh. psychologist. He sounds like the Philip Rushton type of guy. Well, maybe a little bit. What he proposes is something called the Savannah Theory of Happiness. Uh, they always want to go back to the Savannah, these yeah. guys, right? And how is that such a bad thing to do? But why? Because human beings have been physically like this for about 250,000 years. Uh-huh. We've had civilization maximum 12,000 years. But the only thing that we gain from going back to saying that this characteristic is tied back to some sort of characteristic that was selected by evolution in the savannah is saying, I can't help it. I'm sorry. I'm an asshole and I can't help it because I've evolved to be an asshole. I mean, that, well, no, there's, that's there's more what, to it that, than that. that. Let me give an example. Okay. One of my side specialties is in knowledge mobilization and knowledge transfer. And knowledge mobilization. mobilization. Do you know what that is? It's an aspect now of science communication where we attempt to take the evidence from science and right. put it into the hands of people who can use it. Okay. And what I like to talk about in knowledge mobilization and knowledge transfer is that we are in a time now with uh, a complexity of civilization where communication is not like what it was for the majority of human existence. Okay. So when we were... In the savannah, right, or or most of our life as human beings, we tend to have complex interactions with each other. Sitting by the campfire, we had a lot of time one-on-one. One-on-one? Yeah. And usually through grooming. Through grooming, touching, smelling, right? And uh, maybe only 250 individuals, I was heard, is is like the upper limit of... Think about this. On your commute to work every day, you probably saw more people on a given day than you would have seen in your entire life. Right. As a hunter-gatherer. Right, right, right. So are our brains wired for that kind of social stimulus overload is the right. first question. Yeah, yeah. Second of all, as we communicate, sitting around the campfire, grooming, touching, smelling, we're getting all kinds of information between us. Mm-hmm. When we communicate today, it's via email or a phone call. Yeah. It's simply one medium. It's just the content of the language. Right. Now, our language it's today... Textual. It's textual. It's yeah. textual. It's a lot more complicated than it was back in the day, for mm-hmm. sure. But does it give us the fullness of that exchange? It's actually less complicated because it's just textual. Well, the text itself, It's not itself, tactile. Though, it's not smell. It's not... What I'm getting at, though, is that the verbiage is more complicated, but those other elements are missing. Yeah. So the question that we ask ourselves as, as knowledge translation ex- you know, specialists is how can we replicate that fullness of experience today? Right. Like One could argue that the idea of art therapy is an attempt mm-hmm. to recreate that organic, holistic experience of sitting around the campfire. From my point of view, what you're trying to do is take this very broad spectrum of experience, which includes all this tactile 
smell, all this stuff. And then you're trying to compress it and then push it through this very narrow conduit of textual transmission. I which... think that would be the ideal, not the ideal, but that would be a, a very optimistic portrayal of what's happening. So what we're getting, what we're getting through textual exchange is a very truncated version. Very much so. So think about, let's say, teenager breaks up with his or her girlfriend mm -hmm. or something, is depressed, calls up a friend for solace, and they have this long well, talk. Teenagers, they don't call. Teen they, they'll text let's each other. Let's say it's 10 years ago, and they're calling. Okay. okay, They have this long conversation. Do they feel better? Maybe. But let's say they met in person and had this other fullness mm -hmm. experience. They probably would feel a little better. Today, you're right, there's texting. Yeah, it would have a few exchanges with some words. On, right, on so text. we're missing a lot of that yeah. stuff now. Now, you argue that we're trying to compress that full spectrum experience right. in this one narrow thing. I would go further and say people mostly aren't aware of that full spectrum to begin with. Okay. If you were to ask someone on the street, what is the purpose of language? They mm. will say to communicate information. Right. I will say no. Purpose mm. of language is beyond information. It's about human contact yeah. and connection. Phatic communication. There it is. Which is it's not, it's not about the content. It's about, it's the, about content. the very act of communicating itself. Okay. Yeah. We're off on a tangent, of course, beyond yeah. what um, Mary Ellen had asked us to talk mm -hmm. about. But I think it's important to give this context to think about what have we lost from the savannah. Mm -hmm. And this is why I think it's an important consideration. In this overcrowded, overstimulated modern world, we've gained a hell of a lot. Mm -hmm. I love the internet. It really yeah. keeps me alive. Yeah. I would be depressed as hell if I couldn't access my 1,200 Facebook friends regularly. Yeah. So what we've traded is a very rich channel of communication about a, a select group of individuals for a very restricted representation of a large group of individuals. Good point. And maybe that's okay. Maybe maybe trading knowing 20 people very well versus knowing 200 people okay, like marginally well, maybe that's an okay trade to make. So you and I are Facebook friends, and we have the same sort of you know, 10 to 15 Facebook friends that we have regular hourly interactions with yeah, it seems yeah. that seems like almost a little tribal band is it not mm. right we have the same sense of humor we have the yeah. same sort of in in jokes we actually haven't met them all in person met a few mm. of them in person right to me that's that's a, a full social experience yeah now to get back to the topic of the paper let's assume we're smart people Right. It's not, it's not evidence yet. That's a big assumption. Yeah, let's assume that we are. We're, we are smart people. Does that social interaction Who detract from our ability to express our intellect? Which is what Kanazawa was kind of arguing. Mm. He's arguing essentially that uh, the responsibilities that come with being overly social detract from the opportunities to be productive at an intellectual level. Huh. So that would say that you could only be truly... Fully intellectual in a non-channel communication that's not mediated through computers. That's that's mediated person to person. No, that's a tough one. It might be the case because you could say that if you're only in a medium of communication which is with text, that your ability to use text to express yourself is a measure of your intellectual capacity. You know, we all have those Facebook friends who like post stuff which is virtually unintelligible. Yes. Okay. Okay. In a strange way, the channel of communication then dictates the criteria which you use to judge the quality of the interaction. So maybe this person who is perhaps not very textually verbose right. is in person a wonderfully yeah. tactile and expressive individual. Yeah. 
If that's the case, then, then as a civilization, we're just selecting against certain kinds of mm-hmm. traits that may be advantageous. Right. Which argues for a multiplicity of channels of communication, that we shouldn't, we shouldn't just rely on one mode of interacting with you. So that's a, a mental health issue. Now the question is, are we detracting from our ability to be as much as we could be by limiting those avenues of expression, which is what Kanazawa and his co-author are. Who is Kanazawa again? He's the evolutionary psychiatrist who wrote Uh this paper. And how does this relate back to the original poster? Well, what uh, Marianne was asking is, what do you think about this thesis, which is that smart people are better off with fewer friends. Fewer friends. I think the fundamental flaw in his thesis there is, what does it mean? What is smart smart and what is friends? Yeah, Yeah, exactly. That's that's the hard part. I mean, if he sounds, I mean, I don't know the guy, but it sounds like, you know, focus on this one thing that you're really, really good at, then having people in your life distracts you. Mm-hmm. Me personally, assuming I'm a smart guy who gets a lot of stuff done, mm-hmm. if I haven't got social contact, I will stagnate right, right, with yeah. it. Right? So, yeah, I went on Facebook, went off Facebook for about 10 months. I felt somehow diminished because I wasn't in contact with a bunch of people. Now, you could re- recreate that with genuine community of actual people, but you haven't removed Kanazawa's impediment, which mm-hmm. is social contact. Yeah. Yeah, I think his thesis is flawed. And I understand what he's saying and, about this. Well, there's also, hypothesis. do I necessarily want to create a, a community of contact with people who are physically around me? Or do I want to create a community of contact with people who are somehow right. intellectually allied to me, regardless of where they are okay, geographically? That's, that's a good point. So there are different kinds of friendships. Mm-hmm. And I think individuals who accentuate your potential or feed into your creativity mm-hmm. or who are your intellectual peers are, are a magnificent asset. And they could be anywhere, geographically. Precisely right. So having many of those people in your life is far more advantageous than having none or to have many people who are perhaps of not of that caliber of quality in your life. I think he's simply wrong. See it, Mary Ellen? That's your answer. It's a, right. it's a flawed premise. <laughs> have you have you asked me questions? We have not done so. So let's okay. strip ahead to our um, or I'm asking the, you. the facts I, and the furious. My my laptop is out of power, so you're asking I'm me asking questions. questions. <laughs> Let's hit our theme music for okay. the facts and the, and the furious okay. now. Facts and the furious. Okay, question the first. Uh, what is the average number of readers who have read a given science paper? Oh, paper? oh, 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 oh. This is really sad because... Not including the authors. Exactly, not including the authors. So if it was including the authors, we'd at least say one, one reader per paper, right? And I bet you it's less than one. You'd be correct, sir. Yeah. Very good. The number that's typically quoted back in the day used to be two. And I okay. used to quote that number in, in lectures all the time. But when I looked it up, the one stat I found was 0. 0.6. 0.6. Wow. Now, I don't know what's that based on. Probably downloads or something. Rows, possibly. But that seems reasonable to me. Yeah. I so these most it. papers that are put out there are written, not read. Really. Of course not. I'm sure yeah. I've written papers that no one's read. Guaranteed. Right. Yeah. But then some papers are read by 10,000 people. Okay. Question the second. Right. Uh, this is a multiple choice one. Says so something because when we dig up a paper, I, I at least automatically assume that every paper I read has some sort of impact. That every paper I read has been read by the scientific community. Yeah. And this is actually something that comes back to... Uh, a scholar of literature, if someone's written a poem or a novel or a short story, we assume that someone's read it. Mm-hmm. And so we assume that it's out there. 
Well, I mean, a scientific but paper maybe, has maybe been read... someone writes something that doesn't necessarily mean anyone has read it. A scientific paper has been read by the peer reviewers. Yeah. They don't count either. So it's been vetted by their peers, but it has no impact. That's correct. And that's one of the big problems how, in the Yeah, how science. do you measure impact? Exactly. Well, let me tell and you. And how do you measure impact? So if someone writes a poem, great. It's, it's a magnificent poem, and I can do all sorts of analysis of it. But 10 people read it? So I have a consulting contract right now with yeah. a major international organization, which I will not list, where I'm, I'm trying to measure the bibliometric impact of their set of publications. Right. And there are indicators we can apply, things like impact factor, mm-hmm. um, citation rates, but there are qualitative indicators as well. So we're also interviewing the potential audience to find out if you've heard of this paper, if right. you have, have you used it in your in your endeavors and so forth. But the science of bibliometrics is really important for a number of reasons. One, it's an efficiency question. Why produce all this stuff? In those right, yeah. The second, it's important for allowing a measurement of people's career progress. Yeah. Because it's used for promotion right. purposes for professors. So for students listening, this is actually, I believe, a growth area opportunity for specialties in science. Bibliometrics, how to measure How to that. increase it, too. Yeah. yeah, exactly. The next question actually is not multiple choice. Okay. The question is, what is the strongest magnet in the universe? The strongest magnet? Yeah. In the universe. Yeah. In the universe? In the universe. How do we know that? Well, that's been measured. To how do you know the universe? How do you measure it? Well, here's, okay, I'll give you some characteristics of this thing. Uh, it is 20 trillion times stronger than a fridge magnet. Okay, I'm going to say uh, uh, the Milky Way. I mean, that's actually a pretty good guess. Uh, I haven't thought about that. No, it. No, it's it's a, a single object. A single object. Yeah. It can't be the Earth. Not a collection, no. No, it has to be bigger than the Earth. It's obviously a, a celestial object. Celestial object. There's a class of them, but also one like, specific Like one. a horsehead nebula or I don't know. Well, it's a type of neutron star oh, called okay. a magnetar. And a magnetar... Um, it's one of these stars? That... Well, a subcategory of neutron star is magnetar. So a neutron star is a hyper-dense star. It's not, it's not so dense that it becomes a black hole. Black hole, right. But it's so dense that a thimble of it would have the mass of about 100 million tons. Right. A typical magnetar would have a, a diameter of about 20 kilometers, not kilometers, kilometers. Kilometers, yeah. And it would have like two or three times the mass of the sun. Who would say kilometers? That's no, just kilometers, perverse. that's just wrong. Yeah. That's, that's just yeah, that's uneducated. The strongest magnetar yet measured is called SGR0418 plus 5729. Yes. Yeah, we know that now. Yeah. And that's about 6,500 light years away. 6,500 light years away. Light years away. Okay. I agree. There it is. Well, that's okay. fine. Yeah. <laughs> I accept that. Okay. Well, I have other questions for you. One more question. Okay, and then we have cool. to call it quits. What is... The oldest creature ever found. The oldest creature oldest ever, found ever found on Earth. On Earth. Okay, so is it a tortoise? It is not a tortoise. It's not a tortoise. Is it? Is it a plant? It is not a plant. It's not a plant. Uh, it has it, a name, by the way. The is name, it a strain of yeast? It is not. Its name, by the way, is Ming. Ming. Yeah, they gave it a name. Ming. It's not yeast. It's not yeast. Is it microscopic? It is not microscopic. I'll give you another hint. Is it a fungus? It's not a fungus. A mungus? <laughs> I'll give you a hint. Okay. Uh, its, its species name uh-huh. is also the name uh-huh. of a town in Family Guy. <laughs> oh, my God. Ming? What's the name of the city in Family Guy? Or I don't know. Really? It's Rhode Island. It's Providence. Right. It's uh, Where does Family Guy live? 
He lives in Rhode Island. You no, know, he lives in he lives in Rhode Island. That's correct. Yeah. But a, a town in, in Rhode Island. It's called, not Providence. No. I'm sure the listeners know this already. Yeah. They, okay. They, I give up. It's okay. Quahog. Quahog. Okay. Q- so what is this? Quahog is a kind of clam. It, so what? Wait, a clam? A clam is I the know, oldest. The story gets better. So biologists. How how long can clams live? Apparently, a long time. Biologists found this quahog right, uh-huh. and thought is about 400 years old. Yeah. But in measuring its age, right. they killed it. Oh man, that's yeah. like the Heisenberg. Principle. And it turned out it's 507 years old. Wait, that's not very old. There must be things that are older than 507. Well, years. there may be. There some... must be trees that are older than 507 years old. No. Good, good question. I thought there was like a yew tree that was like a thousand years old. I thought so too, you know. Yeah. So I call foul on this. Uh, okay. Let's look this up. I'll have to look that up. But I'll tell you about the quahog though for a second. Okay. Is, um, let's pretend. Let's let's uh, put some sort of scope around it, like um, a compass interval. Non-plant, right. like a yeah, okay. sure animal. Anyway, so scientists killed it, which is the b- best part of the story. Yeah. They also scientists also chopped chopped down one of the oldest trees to count the rings. That's right. stupid. There are things like the hydra microscopic organism that never ages. Uh-huh. So, but no one's ever actually tried to measure the age of a specific. Hydra. If it doesn't age, how do you how do you measure that? Exactly right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it could be a million. It could old. be, but no one knows. No one's ever observed one long enough to know how long it is. Wow. There's also a kind of immortal jellyfish. They think. What if it dies and is reborn every twenty four hours? This is yeah. the immortal jellyfish. Mm-hmm. So the immortal jellyfish apparently, under times of environmental or personal stress, uh-huh. reverts to its polyp stage right. and grows again. It grows again. So yeah. it conceivably could never die. Yeah. But again, only, it's only been known for a few decades. No one's observed it for several. So centuries. when a caterpillar becomes a butterfly. Mm-hmm. Is it the same creature? No, it's not. It's not? So do you reset the Caterpillars plot? are more interesting. Like, I'm not a biologist. It's, it's not that, you know, the, the cocoon is built. Right. And the the caterpillar transforms into a butterfly. Yeah. The caterpillar becomes this jelly. Jelly, yeah, yeah. yeah. And the butterfly just bursts forth right. from the corpse of the caterpillar. Okay, so are we resetting the clock of longevity at that point? It's a good question. Or not? Until next time, this is... Uh, Brady and and Graham Sanders, the taciturn monkey. Oh, Next time.